Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We'll start in uh, verse 12 and continue through verse 26. Mark chapter 14, continuing going through our series through the Gospel of Mark, picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. It should be on the screen behind me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I have never really had very good table manners. My mother tried as hard as she could to teach me how to sit at a table like a human being and eat the way I was supposed to eat. She tried her best, and most of it just didn't take. If it didn't make sense to me why I had to do this thing, I just discarded that as a rule that I shouldn't have to follow. I remember in middle school, we had a unit in school on etiquette. They spent a whole week trying to teach us not to chew with our mouths open, and then they let us put it into practice. They took us to a fancy restaurant. We all got dressed up with our little clip-on ties, and we got on the bus. We went all the way there. We had our little money, and we gave it to the waiter, and we were very proper. We took from the right fork and the right spoon at the right time, and I failed. I have been very good at school my entire life. School is like one of the one things that I wish I could be a professional at because I was just good at it. I liked school. I enjoyed it, and that was the one project in my whole life that I completely failed. There was a kid at my table who said he was done, got up to go to the restroom, and when he was gone, I reached over and ate his coconut shrimp off of his plate, which, believe it or not, is not what you're supposed to do when you have good table manners. (laughs) Stealing food without asking, reaching across the table. I even used his napkin because mine was already all jacked up. (laughs) I failed. Because I failed to follow the rules that had been set out for me for how I should eat. The directives I had been given for how one is supposed to eat. Sit still. Chew slowly. Hold the fork in this hand in this way. Table manners, when you think about them, are how people have told us we should be eating our meals. In our text today, we can see how Jesus is instructing us to eat his meal. 
He's directing us how to approach the Lord's Supper, how to go about this meal, this ordinance that he has given to his people. And in this text, we'll see three directives for the Lord's Supper today. First of all, the first directive we receive from the text this morning is that the Lord's Supper should be prepared for. We should prepare for this meal. In the first verse, we receive the context for the Lord's Supper meal. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see, this wasn't just a normal Thursday dinner where they were eating together in which Jesus decided to invest some deeper meaning into it. They were gathering for a specific purpose, to eat this specific meal, to celebrate the Passover. It's on this occasion that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. This new covenant meal is prepared for in history. All of history had been leading to this moment. All of the Bible had been leading to this moment. The Passover was a yearly celebration where the people of God would gather together to celebrate the Exodus when God brought his people out of Egypt in Exodus 12. The tenth plague that God had threatened Egypt with because Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go was the death of the firstborn. The firstborn child in every house in Egypt and of all the livestock would die unless the Israelites were allowed to leave. But there was another way for the children to be saved. The household could slaughter a spotless lamb take its blood, and dab it on the doorposts of the home. Then, when God came to slaughter the firstborn in that home, he would see the blood, and he would pass over that house. Hence, the Passover feast, the first meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, this Lord's Supper was the next symbolic step that was connected to the Passover. It wasn't designed to be something completely new. It was built on what history had been preparing for in the past. That just as there once was a Passover where God saw the blood and did not give the death that was deserved. Now, this meal is a remembrance remembrance of that same idea. It was prepared for in history, the story of God redeeming his people. It's inherently designed to make us look back to appreciate how we got where we are. Just as history was preparing for the institution of the Lord's Supper, so we should prepare for it as well. By understanding its significance in the life of God's people, we should understand where it fits, where the Lord's Supper lands for us, what led us to this place. But God was also preparing for the Lord's Supper, in addition to history preparing for it. Look at the next few verses. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. Of course, the God who is sovereign over all of history and knew he would build on the foundation of the Passover to institute the Lord's Supper even before he gave the Passover meal to his people. But all the way down to these tiny little details go into this place. At this time, you'll see this man carrying this water. He'll take you to this room, go to that place and prepare for us. God was superintending all of history, not only all the way back in the Exodus, but also all the way down to this day to let us know exactly what was going to happen. All the preparations he had put into place, all the way down to these details. He's still preparing for the meal. He's going before the disciples setting the stage, getting all the details in order to allow them to be able to celebrate this communion. But don't miss the wider point here. God is overseeing every single detail 
which man's carrying water, where they'll find him, where they'll eat. But even more so, he's been overseeing every detail throughout all of human history to reach this point in this meal and the sacrifice that it signifies. It had all been leading to the cross. The sacrifice which this meal talks about. It had all been leading to this final point. He had prepared the meal, yes. But greater than that, he prepared the sacrifice. The body which is broken. The blood which is shed for his people. And so his followers must also prepare for the meal just as God has. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. You see, the disciples were the ones who physically prepared the meal for the Passover. So you, follower of Jesus, need to think about the preparations you should be making for the Lord's Supper even right now. You don't have to prepare the elements, the bread and juice. Your deacons have done that for you, just as they should scripturally. But you can still prepare yourself for this meal. Yourself to approach this ordinance. You can examine your heart. You can begin in the days leading up to the Lord's Supper to look at your life, to seriously think about the covenant that you are renewing when you partake of this meal. Are you denying with your life what you're proclaiming by eating and drinking? Are you only proclaiming that gospel when you eat and drink of this communion? Or are you also proclaiming that gospel every day with words to the people around you? Are you telling them the good news to which this meal points? We'll get to how it should be taken later in the sermon, but I think you'll find, as with most things, that the more prepared you are for this, the more you'll get out of it. The more meaning you'll be able to see within it. The Lord's Supper should be prepared for, but the Lord's Supper should also be taken only by Christians. That's the second directive we receive from this text regarding communion, that the Lord's Supper should be taken by Christians because not everyone was present during this meal. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. This wasn't a meal open to the public. This was a meal among friends. It was a meal among followers of Jesus. And on a certain level, when you read that, you think, this is just bad marketing, right? I mean, you would think that if Jesus is trying to get this new trend going, if he wants everyone to stop observing the Passover and to start observing his new meal, the Lord's Supper... The Passover, that's going out of style. That's so last covenant. But this, the new covenant meal, he's trying to get everyone to switch over into it. So you would think you'd want as many people to see it as possible, right? Like if he wanted to get rid of the Passover and start the Lord's Supper meal, why didn't he do it when he was feeding the 5,000? Why didn't he do it when they were entering Jerusalem? Why didn't he gather the largest crowd possible to join in on this meal on this day, even on the Passover? He didn't do it because it's not for everyone. It's not designed to be something that the masses come and take. It's designed to be something that his followers come and take. It's only for those who understand it. Only for those who can appreciate it. The Lord's Supper is only for the people who have received the sacrifice to which it points. If the body was broken, but not in your place. If the blood was shed, but not for you then it makes no sense for you to participate in this covenant renewal that he's giving to his followers, that he's giving to his people. This meal is a meal among friends, among brothers and sisters united in the body of Christ, among fellow heirs of Jesus. 
And friends simply don't betray each other. Look at the next few verses. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Jesus points out that one of them will betray him during this new Passover meal to highlight the tragedy, the perversion of what's supposed to be happening here. This is an intimate meal among the followers of Jesus, reclining at table with the twelve. And this first one was actually with Jesus. It's supposed to be a family meal. It's supposed to be a close time of unity and community and relationship. It's a time in which they come together to proclaim the common hope they have that just as God has saved them in the past, he is going to do so again. That he's doing so even now. And yet, even in this moment, in this meal, there's one sitting there who's going to betray Jesus. I think there are more texts, there are clearer arguments which get us to the conclusion that the Lord's Supper isn't available for anyone to take. It's only for those who are actively following Jesus after repenting of their sins, actively believing in the grace of his sacrifice and being obedient in baptism after that fact. I think we get there more clearly, more obviously in other texts. But I think this text gets us there narratively, poetically. What a tragedy it is that one who is partaking of the meal signifying the sacrifice of Christ has no part in that sacrifice. One who's sitting at that same table, hearing about what Jesus is about to do for everyone at that table and outside of it, that they aren't believing in it. It's wrong. It should break our hearts. And I think we should have that reaction just for the impropriety of it. Just for the simple fact that it is wrong. We should have broken hearts for that. It's not how it's supposed to be. But even more so, I think we should have broken hearts on behalf of the person who is wrongly partaking. Or the person who is excluded from partaking. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you see the pity that Jesus has for Judas here? He's not angrily condemning him as if, how dare this man sit at my table and betray me, turn me over to the chief priests. Jesus would have been absolutely justified to do so. He could have called him out to his face. I mean, they had numbers on Judas. It's 11 verse 1. They could have taken him out pretty easily. And yet, in that moment, he's mourning on behalf of his betrayer. He's mourning on behalf of the fate which awaits Judas. Jesus is about to be tortured and killed because Judas sold him out. And Jesus knows this. Yet, rather than angrily railing against Judas, rather than angrily telling his followers of the great evil that's about to happen and who's to blame, Jesus is lamenting the effects that all of this are going to have on Judas, not himself. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born a statement of pity. The one who eats the bread and drinks the juice today without actually taking part in the sacrifice of Jesus actually ends up receiving a fate similar to Judas here. Now, I want to be clear. It's not as if taking the Lord's Supper without being a Christian is some sin which is so bad it just can't be forgiven. 
It's not any particular level of sin. It's not in a special class of sins that you can't come back from. It's not like everyone else goes to regular hell and these people go to hell's bad part of town. But in this case, the offense is the consequence. I said it earlier, if you're taking communion without repenting of your sins, without believing in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, then this is just juice. This is just the worst cracker you've ever eaten in your life. That's all it is for you. There's nothing else. There's no more meaning within it. There's no more significance within it. To partake of this meal without being a follower of Jesus does bear a consequence. Absolutely. But the consequence is that you're not a follower of Jesus. The consequence is that all you got out of it was juice and bread. You weren't renewing a covenant. You weren't being reminded of the sacrifice which has saved your soul. All you got was a terrible snack. You're not part of the family, not one of the friends. You're being presented with a visual picture, a tactile experience showing you what Christ has done for you when he broke his body, when he shed his blood. That by you receiving that sacrifice under yourself, you are able to be sustained and fed. You can be given life through him and his sacrifice. And yet in that moment for you, it's just juice and bread. That's all you get. But the reaction we should have to that is similar to Jesus' reaction. He doesn't blow up in anger. He doesn't condemn the person. He has pity. By implication, he's calling you non-follower of Jesus today. He's calling you. He is ready and willing for you to take of the bread of his body and eat of it for real. For you to partake in his blood for real. For you to be welcomed in as part of the family, as a fellow heir and friend of God, rather than the guy sitting at the table who doesn't belong there. There's space for you here. There's an offer for you here to partake of the Lord's Supper as this text directs, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. It is only for Christians, but that invitation, that class of people is open to everyone. You may be excluded now, but you don't have to be. The opportunity to be included is free and open. It is available for the taking right now, today, to be included in that number. But it should only be taken by those who are Christians. The final directive that this text gives us regarding the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper should be about the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the focus. This bread and juice, though it is bread and juice and remains bread and juice, it doesn't actually become Christ's body. What it is is a vivid picture, a vivid symbol through which we are supposed to understand that the central emphasis in this meal, the central point of what we're doing when we eat of this, is on the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. That's what the meal's about. That's the reminder to which it points. It's not just a ritual. It's a reminder. We can look back to the example of the Passover, but even more so now on this end of the Lord's Supper, we don't look back to the Passover only. We look back to what the Passover was pointing to, the cross. We focus on that aspect of this. 
That was our great moment of deliverance. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and in our place, like he's about to do in the book of Mark, what he was was our sacrificial lamb. So now, when we are washed in his blood by believing in his death and his resurrection, by repenting of our sins that we might follow his way and not ours, God sees the blood of Christ on our doorpost and he passes over us. We don't receive the death that we deserve. We don't receive the death that's coming to us. What we get is his sacrifice in our place, that we might get his life in the place of ours. What this meal is, is a renewal of the covenant every time we take it. When they celebrated the Passover, they were remembering and renewing the covenant God had made with them after he brought them out of Egypt. But now what Jesus is doing in this text is instituting a new covenant with a new meal. Hear what he says in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What he means when he says, this is my blood of the covenant is I am instituting a new covenant. There was a former covenant. There was a former law that is being fulfilled and is passing away. And what you are receiving now are the benefits of the new covenant of my blood. That new covenant we get uh, some uh, insight into from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant promise that Jesus is pointing to. When he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. Take and eat in remembrance of me. That's the new covenant he's pointing to. The covenant which forgives your sins, which removes your iniquity. That's what he's telling them. Even in this text, he's saying this body and blood which is being broken for you is the way through which you are able to receive the benefits of this new covenant, which are the forgiveness of your sins, first and foremost. We now today are the recipients of the promises, not of the old covenant, but of the new. We, the church, are the new Israel which receives this new covenant. Whereas the old covenant was broken by the people, this one is built not on our faithfulness, but on his. He forgives our iniquities and remembers our sin no more. And all of this is possible through the cross of Christ. When he delivered his body to be killed and his blood to be poured out, that we might be saved. And because it's all about Christ's body, all about Christ's blood for us, the Lord's Supper ultimately should be thankful. You see, I think we tend to approach this meal, this ordinance, so often in the wrong mindset. Most of the times that I've taken the Lord's Supper in my life, it has been a somber occasion. 
Some of the saddest moments I have ever had were when someone yelled at me for 20 minutes about how unworthy I was to take of this meal and then made me pray for about another 20 minutes, hoping that I would confess every single sin I had ever committed because if I didn't, I was unworthy and shouldn't be partaking. How often has that been our experience when we take the Lord's Supper? But notice what Jesus does with his disciples. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He blessed it. He gave thanks for it. This wasn't a joyless experience. It was an exercise in joyful worship. When we take the Lord's Supper, we should do so in a glad spirit of thanksgiving. This isn't our last meal. This isn't the gruel and broth that a prison guard slid under the door. This is a feast. It's a marriage feast. It's a family dinner. It would actually be okay if we smiled when we took it. I think that would convey something about the Thanksgiving with which we're supposed to be taking it. Remember, the Lord's Supper should be thankful because that's how we should feel about the sacrifice of Christ to which it points. Yes, we do mourn for our sin. Absolutely. We repent of our sins. We lament the sins which made the sacrifice of Christ necessary. But for the sacrifice itself, when we think about the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, when we think about that sacrifice, we should only feel thankfulness. We should feel joy. We're able to feel joy rather than sorrow because our debt has been paid by this sacrifice. The death of Jesus in our place met the demand of God as payment for our sins. So now we don't have to wallow in despair before we take it because we aren't worthy of the sacrifice. We don't have to only lament our unfaithfulness, though there's still a place for that. We can rejoice because that's what's important. It's not how faithful you are. It's how sufficient the sacrifice is. We aren't proclaiming our own goodness when we eat and drink. We are proclaiming the perfect atonement of the one who died for us. Of the one whose body we are partaking of and whose blood we are partaking of. You remember what we call the day on which Jesus died? Good Friday. And what a good day that was. I was lost in sin. I was dead. And now I have received life eternal. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, said it this way, Though we remember our sins with grief, yet we should remember Christ's sufferings with joy. Let us weep for those sins which shed his blood, yet rejoice in that blood which washes away our sins. I don't want to get too crazy, but the Lord's Supper should feel way more like a party than a funeral. It should be a much more joyful occasion than a sad one. The same thing is true with Jesus paid it all. That song we sang before the sermon. The song we'll sing again here in just a few minutes when I'm done. This shouldn't be a song we sing with our heads bowed and our voices low, like we're being marched into a prison camp. I'm all for being moved to tears, but let's at least make them tears of joy. Did he pay it all or not? And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin that left the crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. Oh, what a good and glorious day that is. How dare we say that with a frown? How dare we say that mumbled as if it doesn't matter to us? 
I had skins like scarlet and he made them white. I had a debt I couldn't pay and he paid it for me. I couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. Nothing else could possibly step in and pay my sins. And yet he did. He was the only one that could have done it. And he paid all of it. There's nothing left for me to fulfill. There's no obedience required for me to be justified before the Father. I am able to walk up with a smile on my face to the God of the universe and say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And I get to just stand there and bask in the glorious presence of the God of the universe. He paid it all. Let us smile when we say that. When I take communion, when I focus on his sacrifice, how can I not be thankful? How can I not be hopeful? That's how the text actually ends. It's on a trajectory of hope. Verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Lord's Supper should be hopeful. It doesn't only look back to what Christ has done for us. It also looks forward to what he will do for us, to what he's already secured for us. When Jesus says he won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God, what he's doing is he's promising them that he will drink it again. It's not just a a proclamation of how close his death actually is. It's also a proclamation of the hope that's waiting for him on the other side. The glorious consummation in which he will be able to drink of the fruit of the vine again with his people. This celebration and this feast is not the last. There's one to come in which he will enjoy with his people all that he has got for his people when he returns. And if you think about it, it had to have been pretty scary for the disciples to hear Jesus say these things. He's going to be betrayed by one of them. His body is about to be broken. His blood poured out. Were it not for verse 25, that meal would have ended on a real bummer. It's not a good way to end a family meal. But notice how it ends instead. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang. They didn't sit around and cry. They praised. They rejoiced. Likely what they were doing, what they were singing as they were going were the psalms. Psalms 113 through 118, most likely. The same ones that were chanted by the crowds when Jesus was entering Jerusalem on the previous Sunday. They probably even sang them in order. Ending with these words from Psalm 118, verses 26 through 29. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. As we take the Lord's Supper, as often as we do it, let us remember that we should prepare for it. Let us remember that only Christians should take it. But more than that, let us remember that this meal, this ordinance, is about the sacrifice of Christ. He gave his life, his body and blood, that we might be saved. So be thankful for that sacrifice. So be hopeful in what it procured for us. And don't spurn that offering by not being counted among the ones who can enjoy it. 
Yes, only Christians can partake, but you can be a Christian today. You can enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice today. Repent and believe. That's the first step toward thankfulness. The first step toward hope that you can take. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you, first and foremost, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who broke his body and shed his blood in our place and for our sins. Let us proclaim that death and the salvation it has wrought for us until he comes again. Let this meal that we take as often as we do it be a celebration, be a proclamation. Let it be another chance for us to remind ourselves of who you are and what you've done for us. Not only what you did for us in the past, but also what you're doing with us and in us now. How you're saving us even now. How you're bringing us together as your people into this new covenant even now. But help us also be hopeful and look toward the future, Lord. Help for us to think about that day when you will come again as a glorious consummation, as a wedding feast. Let us not live in fear. Let us not wallow in despair. Let us not focus on the sins which required your sacrifice, but let us focus on the sacrifice which saved us from those sins. Help for us to always approach your meal, your supper, in this way with these people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me as we sing Jesus Paid It All Again. And remember what Pastor Nathan said and see if it makes a difference in the song this time. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all, Jesus paid it all.